Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the new divergence between Washington and Europe and indeed quite a lot of the rest of the world over the future of the Middle East. First, the facts. Donald Trump yesterday declared that the United States recognizes Jerusalem as Israel's capital and that the US embassy will be moved from Tel Aviv, which is a big change in decades of American positioning. But as the region erupts in anger with American flags and effigies of Donald Trump being burned everywhere, We know that this is just the tip of the iceberg of transatlantic disagreements and follows on from earlier clashes over Iran, over Saudi Arabia and the role that it plays in the region and also over how to prepare for a post-ISIL future in the region. To help me make sense of all of these worrying and big issues, we have an all-star cast from our Middle East and North Africa program. Hugh Lover is our lead analyst on Israel-Palestine, who's just come back from Gaza recently, and will be giving us some background on that. And Ellie Guerin-Meyer has come back to the podcast yet again to talk about Iran and the regional issues around uh, that from an Iranian, uh, from the Iranian side of the telescope. And from the Arab side of the telescope, we have Julia Barnes-Stacey who is uh, joining us from Brussels, and he is uh, the lead analyst on Syria, the wider regional conflict that that has um, seen the Gulf uh, split over these kinds of issues, as well as uh, the relationship with uh, Iran, and has often been on the podcast to talk about all these things. So why don't we start with Jerusalem. Hugh, do you want to give us some of the background to the decision, the role of um, Gerald Kushner and, and his peacemaking in, uh, in this decision, and, and what you think the consequences might be? So the most immediate uh, reason for Trump's decision now to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital uh, is this uh, six-monthly waiver that uh, each president is uh, meant to sign, basically. So since 1995, the U.S. Congress uh, basically has demanded uh, that the U.S. government move its embassy uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And every six months, uh, successive U.S. presidents have uh, signed a waiver delaying that action. And this despite uh, the usual campaign promises to the contrary. Uh, And so this uh, waiver once again came up. And uh, in this instance, uh, Donald Trump decided not to to exercise it. Um, And I think it's an interesting moment because uh, beyond the actual uh, requirement to to sign the waiver, there was very little uh, impetus for Trump to actually carry uh, through with this. The, the, the general feeling was, up until recently, that since the U.S. is, is busy trying to craft a new uh, peace process, that actually uh, moving the embassy would be seen as counterproductive. Um, you know, perhaps Trump could have uh, done this in the future before leaving office, but certainly not now. And so I kind of see this as a sort of a, an unforced decision on his part. He wasn't under any real pressure uh, 
uh, from even from the Israelis to do it right now. He wasn't really even under any real domestic pressure to do it right now. So it really is something I think has a lot of people scratching their heads as to why exactly he thought this would be a good idea. And, and you know, this idea that now, you know, it that this could... It was a campaign promise. It was a campaign promise, but, you know, um, President Obama made it a campaign promise and, uh, and uh, George uh, W. Bush also made it a campaign promise, but that doesn't mean they actually do these sorts of things. Um, so but the idea is, again, you know, how can... What is the U.S. logic to doing this at the moment, to think that this could actually somehow increase the chances for, uh, for Middle East peace? especially when everyone is saying, actually, no, this is going to be very damaging. And what are the consequences on the ground so far? I mean, you were in Gaza quite recently. Were people talking about it as an imminent thing then? And do you think there will be a, a new intifada? <laughs> um, no one was talking about U.S. recognition of Jerusalem at the time for the simple reason that no one really thought it would happen, or at least imminently. Um, you know, people were talking much more about you know, the, the more daily concerns that Palestinians face especially in Gaza in terms of the humanitarian crisis, lack of electricity, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think you know, those are things that are, are more likely uh, to, to generate Palestinian mobilization, also the, the more emotive issue of um, the, the Holy Mount, Haram al-Sharif. Um, but what will be interesting to finish on this point in terms of the Intifada, and everyone is always very quick to, to, to warn of such things, um, but at the moment, so we've seen a, a call for mobilization and action and general strikes, but this is a very, I think, top-down process where you see Palestinian factions trying to mobilize their people. And if we, there's anything that's characterized Palestinian mobilization over the last year or two years, it's actually been the opposite. It's been a bottom-up, grassroots, emotive reaction. Um, so I think it will be actually quite indicative of what happens tomorrow as to the actual continued strength of Palestinian factions to be able to mobilize uh, their constituencies around the specific issues. And do you think it could paradoxically help the peace process by making the reconciliation into a real thing? Because there is something now that unifies them rather than uh, it being a purely notional promise of reconciliation between the, the different Palestinian factions. So just in the peace process, just to add one thing is, you know, I think we should be very clear, this really damages the peace process and increases an already uh, a large degree of Palestinian weakness and asymmetry in the talks. Now, when it comes to uh, reconciliation, it's anyone's guess exactly what happens because the U.S. has also been quite, uh, I think, important behind the scenes in allowing this reconciliation to continue. Um, so now with this sort of the, the disruption in relations between the, the Americans and the Arab world and the Palestinians, this will be interesting to see how it plays out. But you're right, you know, if there's one thing that seems to have united the, the Palestinians, it does seem to be uh, Trump's decision yesterday. And maybe before we go on to the broader uh, divergences over the other issues we talked about, it be interesting to hear from you, Julian, how, how the rest of the Arab world is, is reacting to this, and Ellie, maybe how you see it from, from Iran. Well, I think, I mean, there's, there's been a, a sense of, um, of the predictable false outrage by, by Arab governments who have long... Uh, rhetorically voiced complete support for, for uh, the Palestinian cause and yet for so long, of course, done so little about it. So I think purely from, 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 a, from a relations... But more, than, more than that, they've been working really closely with Israel. I mean, the Saudi-Israeli 
partnership has has become one of the the few good relationships in the region. Precisely. So it, I mean, it, 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 that you have this 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 public uh, displeasure and condemnation of the move, but of course, behind the scenes, uh, some of these countries are working more closely than ever with Israel. Uh, there's a, a, a wide reports that the Saudis have been working very closely with the Trump administration to try and work out some kind of peace initiative. There was a report in the New York Times of them effectively uh, coming up with a plan that offered the Palestinians less than ever. So uh, what you see publicly and the outrage will be a response to, to, to the mood on the street, which is clearly going to be very much against this. Uh, what is really happening behind the scenes and the way in which Arab states are effectively prepared to use Palestine, use their, their relationships with Israel for broader geopolitical purposes and, and particularly the fight uh, against Iran, um, means that there is a lot of intrigue here and, and, and the kind of the, the acute possibility that the Palestinians yet again uh, get, get sold short by, by those who claim publicly to support them. And Ellie, what, what have the Iranians said about it? Well, I mean, I think similar to Turkey's position on the issue, Iran has wanted to t champion itself as the kind of leader of the Islamic movements across um, the region. Um, the Supreme Leader and, and also Iran's government have come across, um, you know, unsurprisingly condemning the move. But I do think that against this backdrop of this um, seemingly emerging Israeli um, uh, alliance with Saudi Arabia, Iran actually comes out as looking like uh, the champion of the Palestinian cause because they keep consistently saying we need to move against the countries in the region that are creating these relations. So this whole dynamic and also Trump's action is playing in the hands of Iran uh, quite neatly. Okay, so while, well, just as all of these things were coming into public domain, um, Rex Tillerson, not one of the luckiest uh, political figures in the world in, in recent times, because he can barely get through a day without uh, press reports about his imminent departure appearing. Um, he, he went to Brussels and uh, met with uh, Federica Mogherini, the EU high rep, and talked about Jerusalem, about Iran, about counterterrorism. Didn't look like he enjoyed it very much. Um, uh, Politico said that he sounded like a guy reluctantly attending couple therapy after the slightly frosty joint press conference that they gave. How big a deal do you think the Jerusalem issue is nowadays? I mean, you know, if we take those three sets of issues, uh, Jerusalem, the kind of regional dynamics over Iran and JCPOA, and these disagreements about uh, counter-terrorism as ISIL's defeated on the ground. Maybe we could just go around and get the three of you to, 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 to rank them and see ha um, whether Israel-Palestine is still a first-rank issue or whether it's just become a subordinate issue as uh, other parts of the region have, have gone up in flames. Hugh, I know you've got a vested interest in, in Israel-Palestine being an important issue, but if you're honest, what was your kind of ranking of those three things? One, two, three. So I'm always allergic to having to rank things. But I actually, the thing that most worries me is the regional competition. So even on the Israeli-Palestinian uh, issue, I see a lot of what's happening as often a manifestation of the, okay. the extension of regional fault lines into that issue. So I would put that first. Uh, actually, and then Israel-Palestine second. Throwing a new answer in there. It's not allowed. <laughs> so the counter-terrorism comes there. What about you, Ellie? Um, I would actually um, go for Iran. I have a certain bias on that. But I think it is clear that that's going to be the upcoming clash. 
And, and what, where, where does Israel-Palestine come next or last? Um, I think no, actually, I think with the recent move, Israel-Palestine issue is going to be elevated and also with the French kind of uh, re-emergence of momentum around this issue. Right. What about you, Julian? I would, I would uh, unfortunately, Hugh, put Israel-Palestine at the bottom of the pile. I mean, I don't think there will be a huge outrage at this uh, move purely because no one expects the process to go anyway, anyhow. Um, I, I, I would put the nuclear deal up top um, I think that's the key issue, particularly from a European perspective. And it also feeds directly into the second issue, that of, of regional destabilization. Okay. Well, um, agreement that Israel-Palestine is not at the top, but how far down it's fallen is, is, is not yet clear. Given that you all think that the JCPOA and the, the, the cold question about Iran is the kind of critical issue now, that is something where we had a podcast recently where we talked about um, Trump's decision to, uh, not to certify um, Iran. Um, it is obviously one of the huge foreign policy successes of the EU in recent decades, getting this nuclear deal. So um, maybe we could talk a bit more about how that feeds into the transatlantic divisions, particularly um, also when set alongside the, 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 the more kind of active uh, championing of, of uh, Saudi Arabia and its foreign policy that we've seen from the Trump regime. So maybe I'll, I'll start first by saying a few things on the, on the nuclear deal. So I've just come back from Washington last week where we had several meetings with US officials and um, uh, Senate staff. And, you know, on the immediate question of what does decertification mean, in a couple of uh, days we were reaching the deadline for when Congress was meant to act uh, through this expedited process. Um, no one knows what Congress will do, but the overwhelming um, sense is that it will actually do nothing. Uh, all of the energy for the last few weeks was sucked up by tax legislation and you know, dealing with domestic issues that have been arising. Um, and so there, there has been very little bandwidth for, for dealing with this nuclear issue, but also a sense that Congress does not want to be responsible for breaking the deal. And they seem to be listening far more intently to what the Europeans are saying, uh, particularly with the recent push uh, from the E3 capitals uh, uh, with senior uh, members of Congress and the Foreign Relations Committee. So the, it, it, the predicted route is that Congress will actually do nothing. And then what we'll see is next month in January, mid-January, the ball is back in Trump's court, essentially, when he has to decide whether to renew certain sanctions, which actually directly also impact European business with Iran. And so the focus is now shifting onto pressuring the White House to renew these waivers as they've done twice before. But, you know, President Trump threatened to terminate the deal uh, in October if Congress doesn't act and if the Europeans don't move. So it's, they've been trying to pressure the E3 actors in the last couple of weeks to say, look, unless we get something from you on renegotiating the deal, then Trump may do uh, what he threatened to do, and that's terminate the deal. So I, I've been talking to uh, senior former officials and people who've been talking with current officials recently, and it seems that you get two quite distinct narratives out of Washington at the moment. Do you want to describe them? Yeah, sure. I think that um, what we have labelled broadly as the moderate camp in a recent paper we wrote, and that's all relative now in Washington, but the moderate camp 
are essentially saying, look, we need to preserve the deal and we're pretty confident that the president will preserve the deal, but he's using this space to pressure the Europeans to act much more tough on Iran's missiles program and on Iran's regional activities. And also on the, the whole question about the, what happens after the, yeah. the timelines run yeah, out on the exactly. current deal. To the, yeah, timelines run yeah out. exactly. Um, and then there, there's a, another camp that say, no, actually, I mean, unless there are significant moves to change, uh, you know, rectify and fix the deal, uh, we're going to nix it, as uh, Netanyahu also said in a recent visit. And there, you know, there's a real ideological, um, you know, opposition to Iran across the board and a thinking that you cannot engage with the Islamic Republic of Iran. And one of the interesting things is that a lot of the so-called adults in the room seem to be um, in the most hard-line camp on, on Iran. Like, well, you know, there's, di there's, there's, different, there's, there's different readings on that because some people say, look, they, they are very ideologically opposed to Iran, but at the same time they understand they need to work with the Europeans so they don't want to blow up the deal um, unnecessarily in ways that damage that relationship with Europeans to pressure Iran on, on economic issues, on missiles issues and regional issues. And there are others that say, no, they fit squarely within uh, Trump's thinking and what will be very, uh, you know, should be sending alarm bells for Europeans is if indeed uh, the current head of CIA, Pompeo, is going to be Tillerson's replacement because he's advocated for regime change policies um, and, you know, Tom Cotton, who may, uh, you know, it's rumoured that he could be taking over the CIA post, has advocated very recently for surgical strikes in Iran militarily. So what happens to European foreign policy, Julian, if, if um, the US carries on pushing this? So, uh, do you think Europeans will find themselves forced to, to align themselves strongly with Saudi Arabia and to take up some of these regional issues and to, to try and start a process of, of, of negotiating a successor deal in order to save the JCPOA? Or do you think we could actually have a, a more of a clash? Well, I think, I mean, Ellie can speak to the, this, this, this best of all, but I think on, on the nuclear deal, there is a clear consensus that the Europeans are not going to bend in terms of any step that could undermine the deal and bring it down. Um, I think if you look at somewhere like Germany, I believe that, that, that effectively saving the nuclear deal is effectively their number one foreign policy priority at the moment. So I think on that, uh, th there's a desire to, to firmly entrench it and, and ensure that Trump doesn't succeed in unraveling it. I think the question is, is alluded to by your comments on the regional front is more complicated, and I think there probably will be um, some in Europe who decide that in order to sell uh, a continuation of the deal to Trump will try and put more pressure on the Iranians, will, will agree to work with the US administration in terms of their focus on containing uh, perceived uh, Iranian overexpansion uh, to, to, to try and bring Trump on board. And so we have a number of member states now talking about constraints on Iranian uh, ballistic missiles. We have a more hostile line in terms of their activities in places like Yemen and Syria. I think all of this um, is, yes, a part, in part a reflection of, of the reality of, of Iranian overreach, but, but perhaps more importantly, given actually the lack of direct European leverage within the region, it's an attempt to, to, to comfort the, the, the Trump administration that they can say, look, uh, 
Because of our pressure on the nuclear deal and on the regional front, the Europeans have, have moved further into our corner. And because of that, you know, we're not going to touch the nuclear deal, but we're going to get further concessions out of the Iranians. I'm not sure that can work, to be honest. Uh, again, Ellie can speak to that more, but I think you know, the, the idea that you can squeeze concessions out of, out of the Iranians um, and A, uh, get them to, to continue playing ball on the nuclear deal and B, not provoke a wider conflict that draws in the Iranians and the Saudis or at least an intensification of some of these very dangerous proxy conflicts. I think it's a very optimistic bet and, and if it doesn't pay off, the consequences could be quite devastating. So also maybe I can add just like on the regional front, I think there's this sense that even for those countries in Europe that are keen to work with the United States, and there are a number of them, there's an issue of... Yeah, so France has been very open, President Macron was very open, that look, we're willing, we we, we are with you on, you know, how we see Iran and the regional issues, but we think different tactics might work better than this isolationist policy and, 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 you know, um, containment policy that Trump is advocating on Iran. But there is a sense that, one, there is such little coordination happening right now uh, with Europeans. And part of, I think, uh, you know, Tillerson's visit in Europe was to say, look, we are trying to coordinate with you. But in fact, there's very little of that happening. Secondly, there's so much miscommunication at the moment. Um, you know, speaking to Europeans in, in, in Washington, it was clear that, you know, one day they'll hear one thing from the White House and secondly, they'll hear something different from DOD and then State Department. So they're, they're receiving mixed messages. And finally, there is this worry that, you know, what are we actually getting into bed with? What kind of policy? If you look at what's happened on the Qatar crisis over the summer and then more recently the blow up in Lebanon, um, the Europeans are very concerned about, you know, what what is this Jared Kushner hotline going to lead to um, and whether they want to be a part of that. So what do you think, because I mean, it, that, Julia, maybe you can talk a bit about um, the, some of the impact of, of the strong support that Trump has shown for, for the Saudis and for MP, MBS on some of the regional conflicts, but also particularly on this kind of internecine squabble between um, Qatar and the four... Um, other states that it's uh, battling with. I, I recently saw two very senior officials, uh, one from Qatar and one from Saudi, battling it out over this, and it looks like they're a, a long way from de-escalating that crisis. I mean, I, a, a large part of what is happening in the region today is being driven uh, by Saudi Arabia and, and under the leadership of, of the, the Crown Prince, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, who's the, the 31-year-old uh, son of, of, the, of the King Salman and, and he essentially and the Saudis at large it seems believe that they very much have uh, uh, Trump giving them complete cover uh, to launch a more aggressively assertive position aimed at cementing their vision of, of, of what the region should look like and I think this plays out in, in, in two ways I mean one is this intra-Sunni conflict that you see um, lying at the heart of the Saudi Qatar issue, I mean, and, and also the, alongside the Saudis, the, the Emiratis. I mean, this is there's been a lot of focus on the Iran-Saudi dynamic for the last few years, but at the same time, we've seen a profound uh, division between Sunni states, and alongside Qatar today are the Turks. And this is about the nature of political Islam, the role of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's about the Qataris basically saying we're going to run our own foreign policy show. We're not going to defer to the Saudis. Um, at times, this has undoubtedly involved uh, a much closer relationship with groups that, 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 that veer towards 
um, extremist tendencies that, that even the Saudis would be happy to, and, and, and so on and so forth. So the Saudis, with the belief that they have Trump backing them on this, have uh, decided to step up. They want a Gulf region. They want a Sunni order that is very much under their leadership. Look, they're really struggling with it. I mean, the Qataris have not folded. It's actually provoked a situation whereby Turkey has come up alongside Qatar and said, no, we're not going to allow uh, Saudi hegemony over the region. Um, so it's actually exposed what has been quite apparent for a while, the fact that, that the Saudis are failing, are really struggling um, to assert the sense of, of ascendancy over a Sunni bloc. You have these repeated attempts to bring into Riyadh the leaders of all the Sunni states and to create the, the, the Sunni bloc. And it continually gets undone by, the, by these internal divisions. The Egyptians are another one. I mean, even though the Saudis are effectively financially propping up uh, the Sisi order in Egypt, um, Egypt has nonetheless said, we disagree with you on Syria and your policy there. We frankly, we back um, Assad. We don't want you to go to war with the Iranians because that would destabilize the region. So it's, it's, it's a very problematic situation for the Saudis. And it's set against this other key conflict, of course, which is their, their long-running... Uh, struggle through a number of proxy conflicts with the Iranians. And again, the fact that the Trump administration has come out with this full-hearted embrace of an anti-Iranian rhetoric, not just on the nuclear front, but on the regional front, in large part guided, I think, by the personal experiences of a lot of Trump's uh, senior security folk during the, Iran, uh, during the Iraq war, but also, of course, due to Trump's you know, visceral ambition of just differentiating himself from Obama, they framed the, 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 their regional policy through an anti-Iranian lens. The Saudis have jumped on that, see new opportunities uh, in Yemen where they've escalated in the conflict, uh, in Lebanon where they tried to bring down the government because of its alliance with Hezbollah. So it's, I mean, it's playing out in, in, in very uncertain, unpredictable, destabilizing ways. But the Saudis aren't coming, coming particularly strongly out of it. I mean, in both Lebanon and Yemen, effectively, they are struggling to, to achieve what they want to, to achieve, likewise on the Sunni front. So it's, it, 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 it's, it's, um, it raises a lot of concern uh, about where the region is headed. I mean, I think we all see the, the level of conflict, the humanitarian disaster and so forth. And the Trump administration is not um, really, with a few exceptions, pulling back the Saudis as many hoped that they would, um, and certainly I think from the European perspective that, that, that they hoped that they would. I mean, I would always be uh, cautious to, to link the Israeli-Palestinian conflict too much with Iranian influence. I mean, certainly it is there via Hamas. But to me, the, the real big story of this is actually, uh, firstly, it's the intra-Sunni divisions, which Julian talked about, which we're seeing manifest uh, both in, in Gaza, where now you have the, the Emirates trying to supplant Qatar as the main provider of, of funding and humanitarian uh, help in Gaza. Uh, but we also see this sort of playing out in terms of the UAE now trying to, to sideline and marginalize President Abbas uh, with their own candidate, uh, Mohammed Dahlan. Um, so to me, it's much more an intra-Sunni uh, question. And then, of course, the second angle is this, uh, Julian again alluded to, this uh, advancing uh, Israeli uh, goal for UAE, at least Bahraini and uh, Saudi normalization. And, and while that's been ongoing for a while, there is, I think, increasing willingness to put that set of relations on the table and to continue expanding. Um, I think it requires a, at least the fig leaf of Middle East peace process to do it, but certainly not much more than a fig leaf. And so again, Trump's announcement on Jerusalem will be very interesting. The fact that he did that uh, contrary to, to Saudi advice, um, I think that will be interesting to see how it plays out. And it may actually 
um, you know, pour some cold water, at least for now, on this process of normalization. So the, the big area which we haven't spoken about yet, which we should talk about is this whole question of, of counterterrorism and what's happening um, now that ISIL is being uh, pushed back on the ground in different ways. But maybe before we come to that, I could just bring Hugh in for one last comment on, on, on the last discussion, because, um, ha, you know, it's clear that the topics that you're working on um, uh, are linked up with this regional thing through Iranian support for Hamas and Hezbollah um, and um, you know, even if Israel-Palestine is no longer the only um, uh, mobilizing issue in the, the region, it's, uh, it's no longer separate from all of the other dynamics, uh, intra-regional dynamics either. Sure. I mean, I think the, the military fight against ISIS in terms of their territorial control in, in Syria and Iraq is winding down and, and the focus is now turning, well, how do you stabilize it, these countries and beyond in a in a sustainable way, in a, in a manner that will last. And you could kind of make the case that actually the military fight is the easy part. Getting the politics right, uh, rebuilding these societies, establishing a level of societal trust and legitimate governance. I mean, these are where the long-term really deep challenges are going to lie and where you're going to need a significant investment, not just of, of political energy, but of financial resources. Um, and I think there's a real concern amongst a lot of people uh, that the Trump administration does not want to hang around. They are not uh, invested in, in, in rebuilding these societies. I think to a large extent they embrace a, a sort of mow the lawn strategy, which is you, you, you cut these down, down these terrorists where you find them and then you move on. Um, and, and I don't think that's a, a position that accords with a European perspective on, on, on stabilizing these areas, on how you meaningfully lock in anti-ISIS gains. Will the Americans stick around? Can they be drawn to, to inject some support into this, into this initiative is a big question. And, and you know, is there a risk? I think there is a risk that the American fixation on pushing back against Iran regionally uh, could actually continue to feed some of these conflict dynamics and sectarian polarization, of which, of course, it needs to be said, the Iranians play a large role of, of, of blame and are very responsible. But if the Americans also keep on pushing down that path, you know, does this keep feeding the cycle? So I think for the Europeans, there's going to have to be, and I think they, they expect um, to, to be called upon to step up more full-heartedly on the political front, on the money front. I mean, there's a there's a swathe of territory from Aleppo in northern Syria across to Mosul, effectively a Sunni wasteland of, sort, of sorts that, that needs to be rebuilt, that needs to be injected with meaning and governance and legitimacy. Um, and that is somewhere that the Europeans have to step up on. So maybe we sort of end with that. If you could, uh, if you were meeting with uh, European leaders, you had your half hour with uh, with Macron and Merkel, and um, I'm not sure who else. <laughs> uh, um, Theresa May. Um, uh, what three or four things do you think that they should be doing now? Um, who wants to go first? I can go first. <laughs> the easy stuff. Um, you know, obviously, I mean, to me, the more general point would be, you know, I think the, the EU and its member states need to, to make a sort of an accurate assessment in, in terms of which conflicts they, the EU can actually make a difference in terms of conflict resolution, acknowledging certain conflicts, perhaps we have less tools and ability to change the course of events. 
And so unsurprisingly, of course, I would say Israel-Palestine is one where, you know, there is now a, a vacuum, I think, of U.S. leadership and where there's a need for the EU to engage. And I think there's also a, you know, there's a set of, of reasons for which the needs, you know, it makes sense for the EU to be engaged. This is, after all, our, our, our backyard. Um, but I think there's also a, a unique set of tools that the EU has at its disposal to, to make a difference, both in terms of changing Israeli cost-benefit calculations, but also, you know, uh, trying to strengthen the Palestinians and get their own house in order. And this is obviously some things that we've talked a lot about at ECFR. Um, but it, certainly it's not about the EU replacing the US, I think, as a, in terms of an EU-led Middle East peace process. But I think certainly about you know, how the EU can make a, a effective contributions, while also acknowledging that, unfortunately, at the at present time, the US administration will not be the savior of the two-state solution, or will not be the, you know, is not the, the neutral arbiter if anyone ever thought that. And so there needs to be greater EU independence of thought and willingness to, to act and to lead. Um, so I'd first of all hand them over my recent paper on Iran from October <laughs> that sets out all these ideas. But you know, my, my takeaway message from this year on the Middle East has been, look, you've spent 2017 as, as European officials and uh, policymakers trying to figure out where Trump will position himself on different issues. And now going into next year, we should come out with you know, a firm assessment that we're not really going to know exactly where he's going to place himself and we need to be taking more um, leadership in fixing the problems at, at play. And some of these issues like the Iran nuclear deal um, is, is a deal that Europe has a lot of influence in and a lot of stake in, uh, both um, striking the deal and, and maintaining it. So that's a key area where I think there's leverage and influence and stake. A second area is just to try and, you know, as President Macron has been doing uh, from France, take more political leadership to de-escalate some of the messy situations that are created sometimes by our regional allies um, and also by, by the United States, frankly, in giving uh, a perceived green light for some of these destabilizing actions to continue in the region. So I think buckle up for being forced to take more political leadership uh, roles uh, in, in de-escalating the situation in the region. And finally, I would add, you know, Iraq is an area where we, you know, touched on in terms of stabilization post-ISIS, but the EU is writing its strategy right now in terms of where it can um, make an influence and an impact on, uh, on Iraq uh, with uh, the, the central government. Uh, they have a very important election coming up next year um, in, in Iraq. And that's, you know, an area where we have seen Iran and Saudi Arabia possibly taking actions that can help uh, stabilize the country rather than blowing it up and so any support that Europeans can help in that effort would be important. Julian, last words comes to you. Uh, three things. I think, I mean, firstly, I, I would say the nuclear deal, protecting that has to be a priority. I mean, I think it's so rare to get the European coherence and convergence that we see on this issue and so that, that is clearly an area where Europeans can play a, a significant role, and I think looking to protect that, given the ramifications of unraveling, um, are critical. Secondly, I think um, treading a careful line with our, with our long-standing allies in the region, and I think that's both the Americans and, and the Saudis. I think there's a, 
a general tendency that we basically uh, lean their way on regional developments because of the depth of historical ties. And I think particularly if you look at governments like the UK, which are looking for trade deals in a post-Brexit environment and so on and so forth, there's a, there's a sense that there may be an inclination to, to lean their way, to try and make good with the US and the Saudis. But this also applies to, to other European governments looking to find a space within the Trump world. But given the, the dangers at hand, given the, the assertiveness, the sense of, of aggressiveness and the destabilizing implications of that, I really think there is a need for the Europeans to, to stand back, to hold an important moderating line and, and to try and keep these guys in check a bit um, again, because the risks of an unravelling are so dangerous. And, you know, there, there's obviously a balancing of that in terms of pushing against the Iranians and using our added value with them, because we talk to them and, frankly, no one else does, to squeeze concessions out of them. And then just finally, I mean, there are specific areas where the Europeans can play a role. If you look at, but look at the post-ISIS stabilisation, if you look at the situation in Lebanon, Ellie's talked about Iraq. I mean, I think identifying those more narrow spaces uh, for Europeans to play a stepped-up role will be key towards at least keeping the flames of some of these conflicts at a controllable level and not allowing everything to be consumed into a broad conflict, um, which, I, which I think is possible. Wow. So I feel a bit less impotent than I normally do at the end of uh, these discussions about the future of the Middle East. That was quite a bold agenda. Let's hope, uh, let's hope that people are out there listening. So... Um, we have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf, Ellie? <clears throat> well, I am happily going on holiday soon. So I have just ordered a book uh, to allow me to escape from the Middle East and the world of politics as much as possible with the disconnect. It's by Tom Hanks, his new book called The Uncommon Types, which is a series of short stories that will have my attention span while I'm on the beach. <laughs> so that's my one. What about you, Hugh? Uh, so no such escapism for me. Um, so it's this new book by uh, Donald McIntyre, who's a journalist at The Independent, called Gaza, Preparing for the Dawn, uh, based on very much his first-hand experiences. Working right. there. And what about you, Julian? I'm a complete glutton for punishment. So I'm, um, I'm reading a novel by an amazing Syrian author called Khalid Khalifa. It's called No Knives in the Kitchens of the City. Um, he's this, this really wonderful writer and a, a pretty depressing, devastating one, to be honest. And it's a tale of a family in Aleppo over the last or, or, or since the 1960s and, and, and the pain and, and kind of divisions and, and brokenness that the, the, the Assad regime and its order has, has brought upon them. But I, I'm just about to start it. So okay. you guys don't disconnect on your free time, huh? Yeah. <laughs> So I, I'm going to um, suggest a few things which could allow you to just hang on to this sense that something could be done, which are three papers by, well, in fact, more than three papers, but a series of papers which we'll put on the website by the uh, other people who are on the podcast. So Ellie's new paper, as she, which she mentioned earlier, on the coming clash between the US and Europe on Iran. Um, Julian uh, has a very important paper that we have discussed before on this podcast on, on how to bring peace to Syria in this new political environment. And uh, Hugh has written on the two big things he was talking about earlier, which is reconciliation um, with, amongst the Palestinians and this idea of using the power of the European market to differentiate between the occupied territories and Israel proper, I think. Is that what we call it? The Israel on the... Israel. Um, 
So all uh, warmly recommended and um, there'll be links to all of those things on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to us, you have a duty to tell everybody that you know by writing about this on your Facebook page, on ours, by tweeting about us, but above all, by racing to the iTunes ratings and reviews page and leaving us a review. And if you do that and you email it to me at mark.leonard.ecfr.eu, you will be eligible to be entered in a competition for the much-coveted ECFR End of the World podcast mugs which will make that, that will that will show us how many people listen to the end no an important marker of the podcast actually these mugs have been sent as far afield as uh, uganda and oh, wow. uh, and nigeria and uh, you know the the kind of uh, farer reaches of, of the United States as well as all over Europe. So um, we finally found out that some people do listen to us right to the very end of the Just podcast. Not in Europe, <laughs> no, no, lots of Europeans have had these mugs as well. In fact, people have even tweeted about them. If you if you look on on Twitter, you can see evidence that it's not just our immediate families that, that listen to the very end of the podcast. Um, so on that note. From Hugh Lovett, Ellie Garamaya, at uh, Julian Barnes Dacey, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, and our editor is Katharina Boutel Atzinaro. Mm-hmm.